If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Stephen Patterson, in his book about the death of Jesus, said the Romans did not begin the practice of crucifixion, but they certainly had perfected it. The Romans had decided that they could keep the populace of their spreading empire under control by terrorizing them. Sometimes it was an individual who was crucified, but other times it would be a dozen or more. If you ever saw the movie Spartacus, you know that sometimes it could be a hundred or more. Death by crucifixion did not come quickly. In fact, if nails were driven through wrists and ankles, as scholars believe today, there was relatively little loss of blood. Excruciatingly painful, that moment of crucifixion, but not life-threatening immediately. The hours on the cross were usually very long, as long as a person could push himself up and take another deep breath, life continued as one began to dehydrate, as the sun beat down in the long hours of the day and one could no longer push up. Gradually the lungs filled with fluids and the person died. Even when death came, most of the time the victims were not allowed to be claimed by their relatives. Families could stay by close and watch but could not interfere. And often they were kept back by guards so that packs of roving dogs and ravens picked at the flesh of those who had been crucified. It was a horrible way to die. We believe that Pontius Pilate and the Roman authorities thought they had put one more nobody to death when they killed Jesus of Nazareth. Just one more dead Jew, as far as they were concerned. But he was not a nobody. He was the most significant somebody God had ever birthed into the world. And because he was that significant somebody, the tomb could not hold him. God Almighty rolled away the stone and raised him from the dead. Let's take a look at this passage. My mentor, Dr. Charles Allen, said once, the greatest Easter sermon ever preached is the 15th chapter of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, and this is it. Number one, the death of Christ is about sin also, yours and mine. It is about sin. Paul says that sin came into the world because of human beings. That first humans were asked to trust God, that what God would help them to understand, the direction God was willing to give them would be good for them. But instead, the old Genesis story says they decided rather than trusting God, they would trust this talking snake. 
And where God had said, if you eat from that particular tree, you will die, the snake said, I can't imagine why God told you that. The truth is, if you eat from that tree, you'll live as long as God and be as wise as God. And they decided to have a bite. And death came into the world. Dr. Richard Niebuhr, in his classic on the nature of Revelation, says, so every subsequent generation is born into a sinful society. No family is perfect. All families are dysfunctional, just some more than others. So that by the time we get old enough to make big decisions, like what does it mean to trust God? What does it mean to put myself out for the well-being of another? We have already decided one cannot always trust God and one is better served when self becomes the center of the universe. We harbor our hurts and pains and act out on them in ways that hurt others, and sin continues generation after generation. Friday a week ago, Gail and I went to see Theater Tulsa's presentation of Up the Down Staircase. Our Eric Ohlone was an important part of that cast. You may recall that Up the Down Staircase was a play It came from a novel, but a novel that was truly autobiographical. It was written by Belle Kaufman back in 1965. She was a woman already 54 years old at that time. Belle Kaufman was a member of a Jewish family born in Berlin in 1911. When World War I swept across Western Europe, her family moved farther to the east to Odessa in Russia. She grew up the next few years in Odessa. And when finally that horrible war was over, her family were able to get to the United States of America, eventually ending up in New York City. She grew up there. She received a Bachelor of Arts degree, a Master of Arts degree, went on in time to receive a doctoral degree in Humane Letters. But she taught school in the public schools of New York City. She loved English and English literature, particularly Chaucer, wanted so desperately to teach these young people in her class about all the treasures that can be found in a proper reading and understanding of literature. And instead, she had a room full of malcontents, troublemakers, kids who had been hurt by others. And though in the play, you don't go into the background of all of those young people as to why she's acting this way, why he's behaving that way, you know that they've been hurt, disappointed, frustrated by so much, and they're acting out. It's almost impossible even to get their attention. And the school has decided the way to really shape these young people up is to impose stricter and stricter rules. They have a principal who's primarily in charge of that. He trusts no one, makes life difficult for as many as possible. I mean, it's even got to the point that he's labeled the stairways in the school, some for going down and some for going up. Now, all of these young people are acting out in one way or another, but Joe Ferrona sort of emphasizes the great dysfunction of these kids. He's perhaps the biggest troublemaker of them all. Never where he's supposed to be, never on time, work never done. And this young school teacher named Sylvia Barrett in the play, Belle Kaufman in real life, is trying desperately to win over Joe. To help him understand the great truths that are present there in literature, The best thoughts that human beings have ever had, if one will look, one will listen. She stands up for him. At one point, when 
when he's accused of cheating on exam and she insists that he did not cheat. And there's a long process to try to figure out whether he did or not. And finally, even the principal has to admit that that her faith was well placed. Joe didn't cheat on that exam. And gradually he's won over to believe a little bit more and a little bit more in this teacher. And finally, you get the key to the play when he says to her, I hope you're real because I'm really tired of going up the down staircase. We need to come to that point when we're really tired of going up the down staircase, when we're really tired of acting out, when we really would like to be loved, appreciated, cared for, and that we would learn how to respond in kind. So Easter is about sin. Sin. The sin of human beings that finally drove our Lord Jesus right to death on a Roman cross, determined to show, O love divine, what hast thou done? The immortal God hath died for thee. Number two. Paul says, if we have hoped in this life only, then we are to be pitied. For in fact, Christ Jesus has been raised. And earlier in this chapter, he's told the people in Corinth, we know this because there were witnesses. Let's take a look at the four gospel accounts. Mark is the shortest. We believe it is the oldest. Mark says that on that first day of a new week, early on Sunday morning, there were three women who went to the tomb. Mary Magdalene is mentioned prominently in all four of the gospel accounts. She is in Mark's as well. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, went to the tomb early that morning to properly prepare the body for burial. Because you see... Those who asked for the body of Jesus had been granted that body. Uh, His legs were not broken because the Roman centurion found that he was already dead when he thrust a spear up into his side. They were allowed to take his body down. It was almost sundown, Jewish Sabbath beginning. They rushed the body to an unfinished tomb where no one ever had been lain before. And then a great stone was rolled over the mouth of the tomb. When the women arrived on Sunday morning, after the Jewish Sabbath, after a day and two nights of grieving, they got there to find that the stone was rolled away. And when they looked into the tomb, they saw a young man in dazzling white cloth who said to them, He is not here. He has been raised. Go and tell the others. Matthew, in his account, tells us also there were women led by Mary Magdalene who went to the tomb early that Sunday morning to prepare the body of our Lord for a proper burial. And when they arrived, they found the stone rolled away and a messenger inside who said to them, He is not here. He has been raised. Run and tell the others. And as the women began to run... Suddenly, they were met by Jesus himself. That they were first to see our Lord Jesus after he had been raised. He said to them, go, tell the disciples what you have seen. And they ran and told Peter 
And Peter hurried to the tomb and looked in, but did not understand exactly what had happened and went back home. Luke, in his account, says there were women who went to the tomb early that Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the others. And when they got there, they found the stone rolled away. They looked inside and they saw this angelic presence saying to them, he is not here. He has been raised. Run and tell the disciples what you have seen. And so they ran and they told Simon and the others and they ran to the tomb and looked inside Later that same day, Luke says, two were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a distance of seven miles. Think from here to 81st and Riverside. They walked seven miles home that day. On the way home, uh, they were joined by a third as they walked along, sort of kicking in the dust, so frustrated, so disappointed. This third one said to the two, uh, what seems to be the problem? And they said, well, we thought he was the one. We thought he was the one, the long awaited Messiah of God. And they killed him. There is nothing in the Hebrew scriptures about a crucified Messiah. Nothing in the Hebrew scriptures about a dead Messiah. This was a tremendous shock. And people who knew him, loved him, had followed him did not believe now he was Messiah if he had died. But as they continued to walk toward their home, this third one began to explain to them the Hebrew scriptures. When they got home, it was getting dark and they said to him, please, it's not safe to be out on these roads after dark. Please come in and eat with us. Stay with us for the evening. They compelled him, Luke says. And so he went inside when it was time to eat. He broke the bread. He poured the wine and they recognized him. Suddenly he was no longer there. Weary as they were, they got up and ran seven miles back to the city and started pounding on the door of that upper room. He is not dead. He is alive. He is not dead. He is alive. And while they were telling the story, Luke says, suddenly Jesus himself was with them. They thought they had seen a ghost. And so he said to them, look, see my hands, see my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. And then to help them understand that he was the same one whom they had known, he took a piece of fish and ate it in their presence. John says, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early that Sunday morning. Stone was rolled away. The body was gone. That she was told he is not here. He has been raised. And that Mary ran to tell the disciples. She's, in this story, we're told that John and Peter arrived. That Peter went in first, not sure what he had seen. And then John looked in. And understood that Jesus had been raised. That same evening, John says, they were in the upper room when suddenly Jesus was with them. And he said to them, do not be faithless, but believing. Shalom, my peace be with you. Thomas was not with them when the Lord came. And so when the others told Thomas later that the Lord had appeared, 
he said, I can't believe that. If I don't see him, if I don't touch him, then I can't believe you've really seen the one who was crucified. So that same evening, a week later, on Sunday evening, Thomas was with them this time and Jesus appeared again. He said, Shalom, peace be with you, Thomas. Do not be faithless, but believing. Do you need to put your hand into mine? Do you need to put your hand into my side? Then do it. Do not be faithless, but believing. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And John says there are so many other stories I could have told you. But I've told you this many. That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah of God. And believing have life in his name. Number three. He becomes the first fruits of all of those who sleep. When I was a boy growing up at Carthage, Texas, a number of farmers were still growing cotton. They were still growing cotton, and there were all kinds of insects, the boll weevil worst of all, that could devour the cotton crop. It was always a, a real iffy proposition. Would the rains come at the right time or not? And so the first bale of cotton became so significant. We had a weekly newspaper in my hometown. We got a daily paper out of Shreveport, Louisiana. But the weekly paper came from our hometown. And when the first bale of cotton was ginned, it made the front page of the paper. Whoever that farmer was who produced the first bale of cotton, that farmer got his her picture in the paper. Whole family with a bale of cotton. And how much money was paid for the first bale? Because the first bale of cotton implied there would be more bales of cotton. And it would have been a good year in Panola County, Texas. But that didn't originate in Carthage, Texas, of course. When one reads carefully the Hebrew scriptures, we are told that this is very much a part of ancient Judaism. That when you start to harvest the olives, when you squeeze out that first bit of the oil, Bring it to the temple and pour it on the altar as a first fruit of all the other oil that will be coming. When you squeeze those first grapes and make the first wine, bring it to the church, to the temple in that day. Pour it on the altar in the temple as a sign of all the other wine that will be forthcoming. Bring that first bushel of wheat Bring that first bit of produce because they signify if this olive oil, then more olive oil. If this wine, then more wine. If this wheat, then more wheat. That's the imagery Paul is using here. That if, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, then he is the first fruits of all those who sleep. And those who are in Christ will also be raised. They will be given a resurrection body, incorruptible, indestructible, changed, and yet that same person 
as our Lord Jesus had been changed, could now appear behind locked doors, but also was recognizable, could eat a piece of fish. That's what the gospel writers tell us. So today we think of cemeteries special to us, where those whom we love are buried. Those special places where we go and walk and remember. Thank God for so many good things. Two months ago, Nancy Oliphant died. Nancy Oliphant was the widow of one of our Methodist bishops. Uh, Bishop Ben Oliphant was her husband. Nancy was born in Alexandria, Louisiana. Even though her family had come from a little bit smaller community outside near Pineville, Louisiana. Uh, Her family worked hard to see that she had benefit of education. She went to LSU and was graduated from the university there. And she met and married a young Methodist preacher named Ben Oliphant. In time, they would live in New Orleans, where he was a pastor, then up north part of the state in Monroe, then back to her hometown, where Ben was pastor of the First Methodist Church in Alexandria, and then on to University Methodist Church, just right off the campus of LSU in Baton Rouge. After successful pastorate there, Ben was offered the pastorate of the First Methodist Church in Dallas, Texas, and they moved to Texas after eight years of being pastor of that great church. He was elected a bishop. He was bishop of the whole state of Kansas and then became bishop of the Texas Conference headquartered in Houston. Eighteen months ago, the bishop died. Nancy was still writing thank you notes to those who had sent flowers or gifts in the bishop's name or who had come to his funeral services. He had agreed to be buried in her family plot over near Pineville, Louisiana, and that was accomplished. Still writing those thank you notes the few weeks after his death, when she was told that one of her four children, grown, all of them, three sons and a daughter, one of the sons, a very successful young hospital administrator, was having some unusual problems, had tests run, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And the oncologist said, we will help you do everything we know how to do. But life expectancy is about a year. And so Nancy went through that long, difficult year. Surgery, radiation, surgery, death. Five months after his death, her son Clayton, who's minister of First Methodist Church in Richardson, Texas, had asked his mom if she'd be willing to babysit their teenage kids while he and his wife had a little vacation. She said she'd be glad to do that. But one morning when the teenagers woke up and were ready for breakfast, Nancy had died in her sleep. So her three children tried to decide how they could celebrate her life in a way that would have been meaningful to her. Having grown up in a small town in South Louisiana, It just worked out the time she died, the few appropriate days before the service should be held, that the funeral was held on Shrove Tuesday, the Mardi Gras. When proper scriptures had been read, prayers offered, hymns sung, eulogies given. Suddenly one could hear the wailing of a bagpipe. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound 
that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And just as the last note of the bagpipe faded away, they heard the sound of a small jazz ensemble playing. Oh, when the saints go marching in, Oh, when the saints go marching in, Oh, Lord, I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in.